Amen. You won't want to miss uh, tonight at 6 o'clock. Come on back. Bring some friends with you. Shane and Angela will be in concert, and it will be a glorious night as we highlight our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, what He's done for us. Well, the record of human history has provided us with at least one certainty, and uh, the Scriptures themselves make this a consistent issue, a repeated message from the beginning of the Scriptures right through to the end, and that is this. If a person chooses to rely upon themselves or to choose other replacement gods for their happiness or their security or to meet their needs, they will wind up in gloom and misery. That's what the scriptures teach. Heading away, heading in the opposite direction of the light of life always brings the same distressing results. Gloom and darkness. And that's what the scriptures teach us, of course, the section we've been looking at in particular in the book of Isaiah. The earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into outer darkness. Isaiah 8, verse 22. And as a result of the vast field of humanity that chooses to replace God with themselves or other things, they stumble around in darkness and gloom and are unable to see the right direction for life, are unable to make the right judgments on life, are unable to choose clearly how to live. And as a result of stumbling around morally, spiritually, even physically, people become an easy prey for the enemy of our soul, Satan, who prowls around like a lion looking for whom he can devour. And so we have this great crisis of humanity. But the scriptures are quick to teach a contrast, a tremendous contrast to that way to live. In fact, um, today's uh, beginning verse of the text we're going to look at uses the word nevertheless or but as a strong contrast of nevertheless there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. There is this great message of hope in the midst of this gloom and distress and brokenness and pain and trapped and snare and hurt, there is this nevertheless, God offers a better way. God offers to humanity a choice to turn to him and turn from the replacement gods and turn to the living God for the light of life. And so we'll look at that today, the dawn of redeeming grace, what God has done for us. And I, I trust that it will enlighten and, and encourage your heart and your soul all over again. Would you bow uh, for prayer with me? Father, I pray this morning as we uh, have this time now in your word, thank you for what we've already been able to 
express to each other and to you in, in, by way of worship in music and to lift up our voices and our hearts with the great lyrics of, of the great songs of Christmas, the great songs of faith that, that, uh, that uh, lighten our heart and remind us that you loved us so much that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Savior, to be our Redeemer. The dawn of redeeming grace has broken and we have the light of life and we have a choice to turn from the doom and gloom and distress of, of, of turning from you and wandering aimlessly and, and to turn to you, O oh God, who is uh, to turn to life everlasting. So I pray, Father, that, that you would um, enliven our hearts uh, all over again with the truth of your word to us today and, and the, uh, the joy and the rejoicing that ought to be ours in light of what you've done for us. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you please turn to Isaiah chapter 9. By way of review, this um, contrast or the offer of God that we have been looking at is none other than Emmanuel, God with us. There is this alternative way to live. You can live uh, based on yourself and your own choices and wander in distress and doom and gloom and darkness, or you can have God with you, Emmanuel. This is the great promise of the scriptures. This is God's choice for us and God's wonderful offer to us. And, and we saw it in Isaiah chapter 7, that great promise of a child that would be born and would be called Emmanuel, be born to a virgin and called Emmanuel. And there God appeals to his people and says, don't trust in your enemy to take care of you. Don't trust in God's enemy to take care of you. Don't trust in the things that seem convenient and, and, and nearby but are enemies of the living God and enemies of everything he, he stands for. But rather, trust in God. And, and I will promise you, I will give you a sign. Emmanuel, I will really, really be with you. That offer was made in Isaiah chapter 7, but by the time we get to Isaiah chapter 8, we realize that the people chose Assyria rather than God. They chose a pagan nation to put their trust in, in the enemy of God and everything that God stands against. And so they chose to do that. They chose a, another child sign rather than Emmanuel. They got Mahar Shalel Hashbaz. And they described this child was a sign that describes their horrible estate that, that they would now be quick to plunder. They would now be uh, uh, quick to, the, to be spoiled, quick to be spoils of the enemy. But I'm so thankful to be report to you today of the stubborn, sovereign love of God who would not allow us to uh, have our own way, but rather chose to honor his promises and to commit his, his great will uh, for us to be part of his great family. And by the time we get to Isaiah chapter 9, he re-offers and re-clarifies and, and, and gives a grand description of this Emmanuel offer all over again, which is a great Christmas text that so many of us know, for unto us a, a, a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called the uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. We have this great text that this promise is given to us, and we want to unpackage that today, this nevertheless. And by the way, in the Hebrew Bible, the first verse of chapter 9 is actually the last verse of chapter 8. And I like it better that way. I wish the, uh, 
And the translators had have left well enough alone because the uh, Hebrew writers really got it right. The, the contrast looks so much better if it's, it's tagged on to the end. So really verse 1 of 9 is really verse 23 of chapter 8. Nevertheless, let me read you verse 22 because the great contrast is so important here. Um, then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will thrust into, be thrust into outer darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The good news of God is this. Hear, everybody listen. It's like the town crier comes out and says, Hear ye, hear ye. Hear what the great God of the universe has to say to those who are living in distress and gloom and hopelessness and despair, didn't know which way to turn. God has something better. Listen up. This great call of God from the midst of the mess, God promises to turn the lives of the defeated and the broken and the trapped around for his glorious praise and to the praise of his glory. But first of all, it is really important for us to understand how this is, whole section is structured. Um, chapter 8 describes the, the messy choice of God's people to reject Emmanuel and choose preference to choose the evil empire of Assyria. And then in chapter 9, verse 8, God elaborates on why he is so distressed and so angry with the people of the world, in particular, his own people, because they have rejected him repeatedly over and over again. By the time we're halfway through the book, we're halfway through the book and, and the people who should know better are still rejecting God. When will we ever get it? When will we ever learn to turn to the living God for our help and our health and our happiness? When? And so in verses 8 and following, God elaborates on on what makes his blood boil, why he is so angry. God describes in this section that he is, he is against us. He's in opposition to us because of the way we're living. Now there are a lot of things that you don't want to have against you. But the the thing that you want or the person that you want least to be against you is the living God of the universe. To have God in opposition to you is unthinkable. And so in this section, and I want to uh, talk about the mess because there's this bookends where there's this mess of Isaiah 8 and there's this mess of the latter part of Isaiah 9 and in the midst of the mess, God's stubborn, sovereign love breaks through and changes everything. But we need, to, we need to know what pierces the heart of God. What causes the holy God to have holy wrath 
why, we have, to, we have to understand the question of why God can't be with us. Why he is against us. Before we will ever understand how God can be with us. What exactly are the charges that creator God has and brings against humanity? Well, look with me, verse 8 through verse 12. First of all, the Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel, and all the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. This is a reference to God's people, Israel, Jacob, Ephraim, those Jews living in Samaria. This is a timeless message to those who call themselves the people of God but are not living like it, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. But the Lord has strengthened Rezin's foes against them and has spurred their enemies on. Arameans or Assyrians from the east and Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. You're going to see four markers in this text. Four distressing markers in this text of what makes God's blood boil. And the first is arrogance. Now this is not a description of, of uh, uh, talking about human self-esteem or human self-image. This is talking about the preoccupation of human beings at all costs to be completely self-absorbed, to, to do whatever it takes to make themselves look good. There is this insidious thing within our nature, human nature, that we believe we can fix our own problems. In the text here, it says, well, you know, yeah, sure, the, the brick wall of my life has fallen down, but I'll rebuild it, and I'll rebuild it with better stones. They'll be dress stones. Yes, I know the fig trees have, have fallen down in my garden, but I'll replant them with cedar trees. I, I can take care of myself. There is this unmitigated arrogance and pride of humanity, the, the created, to have this unbelievable, arrogant, and proud attitude that we can look after ourselves. We don't need God. It's bizarre. I mean, it's the, it's the complete misunderstanding of how the universe functions. We are a dependent creature. God is the creator God who sustains our life. We are breathing this instance because God has decided not to suck all the oxygen out of the universe. In an instant, he could choose to do that, and we would be dead in a millisecond. We are alive because the God of the universe has decided to allow the light of the sun to shine on this planet, when in fact he could cover it with all of the planetary uh, elements, and it could be darkened, and we would be dead. 
We, we are surviving today because the, the planet Earth is, is maintained by the Lord Jesus Christ who holds all things together in its orbit. If it were to stray a little bit outside of the orbit, we would be frozen to death. If it were to stray a little bit inside of the orbit, we would be burned to death because of the grace of God. And it's incredibly arrogant for Creator God to sit in heaven and view puny, pathetic, dependent human creation who says, it's okay, God, I got this. I can take care of myself. It distresses the living God to see our arrogance and our pride, the humankind who says, I can fix my problems. And they deny the discipline of God. When the wall of your life falls down, you can't build it with better stones. When the fig tree in your garden tanks, you can't just replace it with cedar trees. It's the discipline of the living God who's trying to get your attention and say, why are you trying to live life on your own with arrogance and pride? You're a dependent creature. You need me. When we get haughty, reject the correction of the Lord. Verse 13, but the people have not returned to him who struck them nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. Yahweh, the great I am, the Lord of heavenly hosts. And we shake our fist at him. Say, I can take care of myself. Thank you very much. And we go a step further. We say, who does he think he is? that he should tell me how I should live. I've heard of people leaving this place on a given Sunday, having heard the words of God, claiming to be offended by his word. Who does God think he is that he should tell me to live this way? And who is that guy who speaks for that God I'm offended by what he has to say. God is against us when we are arrogant and proud. Verse 13. But the people have not returned to him. So the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm branch and reed in single day. The elders and prominent men are the head. The prophets who teach lies are the tail. Those who guide this people mislead them, and those who are guided are led astray. Therefore, the Lord will take no pleasure in the young men, nor will he pity the fatherless and widows, for everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks vileness, yet for all this his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Offense number two to the living God is leaders who mislead. Leaders who mislead. Who are these people? Who are the leaders who lead like this? It says they guide people, they mislead them, verse 16, and are, they guide them and lead them astray. They, they lead people to hear what they want to hear and to have what they want to have rather than to hear what they should hear and have what they should have according to the righteousness of God. 
They are political pollsters who test the breeze, test the direction of the crowd, and say, what can I salve their hearts with today? Tell them what they want to hear as opposed to what God wants them to hear. They tell lies for popularity. I don't know what position God has given you in his kingdom, what leadership role God has given you and privileged you to have, but it is an awesome responsibility and privilege. And you must tell the truth. You must tell the truth. I think the worst position for a leader to find themselves in is, is to actually believe they are the leader. It's better, it's better, you know, to, to wake up every morning of your life astonished by the amazing grace of God in your life. And, and if he's given you any role or any responsibility at all to, to wake up and, and, and to, be, to be amazed that, that our God, the great God of the universe, would entrust something to you and, and to give you opportunity to mentor or to lead or to tell his truth. It's an awesome privilege. And every morning you should wake up and, and disbelieve that you're a leader. It should be incredulous to you. Someone should have to remind you, hey, dude, you, you need to lead because you've been called to lead. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Leaders who mislead. Those who seek to tell people what they want to hear to fill up their churches will continue to make God's blood boil. He is not pleased. And it says he will cut off the head and the tail of operations like that. He goes on. Verse 18, surely wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched and the people will be fuel for the fire. No one will spare his brother. On the right they will devour but still be hungry. On the left they will eat but not be satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of his own offspring. Manasseh will feed on Ephraim. Ephraim on Manasseh. Together they will turn against Judah. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His stand, hand is still upraised. The third mess that grieves the heart of God is brothers who don't love brothers. What causes brotherly breakdown? Total self-interest. Total self-interest. Abandoning the the greater love and the greater cause of your brothers and sisters in favor of your own personal lusts 
Because we're talking here about consuming fire. The description whereby we are willing to eat alive the people we are supposed to love the most. Look at what it says there. There's no, there's no, it's not hidden here. There's no hidden mysterious stuff here. It states it clearly, talking about brother, an insatiable devouring hunger to eat and, and to actually feed on one's own children and on one's own family. And of course, talking about Manasseh feeding on Ephraim, they're brothers. Joseph's sons. So there's no question about what God is talking about here. This is not about the pagan nations around. He's talking about his own people and the brotherhood of being in the family of God and what that means and how it should, how it should operate and function. That we would allow as brothers and sisters in, within our own family, not even in the family, of, even not, not talking about the extension of the family of God, but within our own family to, to be so consumed by our sinful, lustful attitude and approach toward our own personal lives that we would eat our own children alive. By the way we live, we are so consumed by our own sinfulness and will not let go of it to such a degree that we don't even care if our own children go to hell. That's what this is talking about. We don't care about our own husband or we don't care about our own wife or their spiritual state or how we're treating them. That we don't care about someone else's husband or someone else's wife. We don't care about our brother's wife. We don't care about our sister's husband. Our sinful lust consumes them by the fires of our own desire. Every time I feed insatiable hunger for filmed prostitution... I am eating and devouring someone else's daughter. And because of my sinfulness, I don't care. But God cares. Oh, God cares. God is against you. God is opposing you. We use people for the fuel of our sinful fire. And we think God is shrugging his shoulders over it. And the frequency with which this happens on Christ's mission alarmed the Apostle Paul. It was the first thing he said about the Lord's table. He was frustrated with those who'd come to the Lord's table while they were damaging each other. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings, and these are church meetings, do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you and to some extent, I believe it, with grieved heart. And then he says this, and don't miss this. No doubt, 
There have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. That's a sobering statement because what that says is those causing division among the brotherhood do not have the approval of God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a disciplining God. Our love for each other is the one distinctive that the scriptures make abundantly clear that is the unique characteristic that marks us out as truly people of God. It's not our great giftedness. It's not, we, we are not, we are not deemed in the family of God by how magnificently we can sing or how well we can teach or preach or, or the great things that we can accomplish among the body of Christ or the great strategic responsibilities we have as servants of the living God. The distinctive that sets us out as genuine is found in John 13, 35. And it is what? This is how they will know you are my disciples. Not by how well you can sing or by how well you can preach or by how much you can give to the poor or how by, by how many times you can attend worship service. What is it but how much you love one another? This is our distinctive. And anything less, God hates. Verse 1 of 10, woe to those who make unjust laws to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making win widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Fourth, People who abuse people make God's blood boil. He widens it from brothers and sisters to people in general. God cares about people. He stated it to us from the beginning of the book to the very end of the book. People matter to God. And if you make rulings or you make decisions or you make laws that produce victims, God is opposed to you. If you do this for personal gain, you are making the worst investment of your life. If you are ruining other people's lives for your own personal gain, you are investing in damnation. You are investing in hell. You are investing in the opposite of what God says we are to do, which is to lay up treasures in heaven. You are not laying up treasures in heaven. You are laying up judgment in hell.
You will cringe among the captives and fall among the slain is the worst investment of your life. To gain on the backs of victims. So the question for us is, am I a generous person or a cheap person? Do people benefit from me or are they ripped off by me? Do, do people say he is, he is cheating us all the time or he is more than fair? If you're an employer or a merchant or, or wherever you have the opportunity or, or an employee or whatever role of life, are you abusing people or are you empowering them and enlarging them? Because God notices every single thing you do and I do. The things in which you partner or invest in. Are these operations or organizations that oppress people? Or build people up? That rip people off or provide for people? It should matter to you. It matters to God. Now, if I were to end the sermon here, it would be just doom and gloom, but I have great news for you because in the middle of this mess, <laughs> there's this word, nevertheless. You don't have to live this way. And, and so the question is answered, and very quickly, we'll, we'll round, wrap this up, but very quickly in the center here, which you know so well, it answers the question, how can a holy God be with an unholy people. This is the good news, the great news of this text, the great news of the Bible, the great news of the God of the Bible, the great news of the God of the universe. People are living in distress and doom and gloom and live a, a horrible way, but they don't have to. You, we can all live a different way as we see what God is willing to do for us. God promises to turn the fortunes of the defeated and the trampled down and the broken and the trapped around. That's what this text teaches us. Those who've been scheduled to be th thrust into outer darkness can know the redeeming dawn of the grace of salvation through Jesus Christ and what he promises here. This astonishing uh, proclamation that's been made here with extraordinary requirements. Uh, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a child and, and God himself will really live among us. Let this sink into your head and your heart all over again. It, it's truly amazing, truly extraordinary what God has done for us. But first of all, we have to ask the question, why? Why does God humble us? Because it says in verse, chapter 9, verse 1, in the past, he humbled the land. of Why does God humble us? The truth is God allows us to be fully exposed to the heinousness of sin that in some way we might recognize that it is ruining and wrecking our lives and the people around us and, and then perchance we might lift up our eyes to the hills and say, where does my help come from? My help comes from the living God, the maker of heaven and earth. God allows us to feel the full force of our sinfulness to humble us that he might raise us up with the truth of his redeeming grace, his salvation. And this beautiful story here of what God does, he says here, 
In the past, he humbled Zebulun and Nephtali, but in the future, he'll honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea and along the Jordan. We, we, this is not just a, an interesting geographic tidbit that's thrown into the scriptures here. This is a profound promise of God, whereby he says to the people, right from the place where the Assyrians began the plunder of Israel, I will drive them back. And where you, were, where you were humiliated, I will lift you up and bring honor to you. You see, Zebulun, the tribe of Zebulun, the tribe of Nephtali, are, are tribes geographically situated just north and to the uh, west of the Sea of Galilee. They, they spread up to Mount Hermon through the fertile valley that, that moves down through the Sea of Galilee along the along the river Jordan whereby all the plundering nations used to come down and, and take Israel over and plunder her and, and so God says here to them right where you've been plundered and where you were a spoil Mahar Shalal Hashbaz I am going to drive back and honor you in the Galilee now we know 2,700 years later that he's talking about the, the Christ, the Messiah, the living God. But it's a picture that's being painted here in the Jezreel Valley, just east of Megiddo. This great promise of God. And the promise is to you and to me. Because at the very place where the enemy has plundered your life and humiliated you, the living God intends to lift you up and honor you. Honor his name. Honor you Honor himself by honoring you with his great and powerful ability to restore all the things that the enemy has taken away from you. That's the powerful message as we launch into this great story of what God is about to do. Not only that, it says he will shatter the yoke of abuse by presenting heaven's champion. You'll, be enlarged the, you'll enlarge the nation. Your joy will be increased. You're rejoicing over the harvest as men rejoice and dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, there's this great picture of what God is going to do to restore and cause rejoicing and joy so that his people will leap for joy because what God has done and what God is about to do to rescue people out of their distress and their gloom and their being thrown into outer darkness he will shatter the yoke of abuse to those who've been abused and battered by life not by a greater oppressor but by the coming of the Prince of Peace who his whole mission is to bring peace to hearts as a child in a manger it's interesting here because regularly God's great and glorious work looks small and weak and and like it won't accomplish much and uh, God is uh, telling them that it's going to be a child in a manger. It's not going to look like a whole lot, but it's going to be a great and amazing thing. He's about to take over the universe with the greatness of this great message. And so he slips in here just a little aside where he talks about Midian's defeat. It's really fascinating because what, what's Midian's defeat? Anybody know what is he talking about there? He's talking about Gideon. Uh, remember Gideon, there was 200,000 or so Midianites that were uh, encompassing and, and going to force, uh, uh, force Israel into captivity. And uh, Gideon is called upon to gather and deliver the people of God. And he gathers around himself 10,000 warriors. And God says, oh, that's too many. 10,000 warriors against 200,000 Midianites. Uh, no, the, the odds are... are the odds are, are too great. No, no, I want to cut that down to 300 people. Let's cut it down to 300. 
300. Gideon, I'll give you 300 people to go against 200,000. Gideon's like, what in the world are you doing? And then it really amounts to just 100 people go into the camp, and God decimates the whole Midianite thing, the whole defeat. What looked like a little small band of 300 or 100 warriors, which amounted to nothing, God accomplished great and powerful things. And so he says, don't despise the little things that I'm doing because the little things, if I'm in it, will become massive and amazing things in your life. A harvest, a bounty, a conquest of spoils. But finally, this great sign of, for, uh, for us, a child is born. How is all of this going to happen? And he says here, because this is going to happen because of, of Emmanuel and, and this description of a child, a son, a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. What is all of this about? Well, let me just tell you. When, when, when the Jews, when, when the Jews uh, uh, heard the word Emmanuel, they heard it all the time. It's Hebrew to us, and it, and it, it, it evokes uh, the, the mystery of the, the incarnation and of Jesus Christ to us. But to them, Emmanuel, God with us, they, they would on a daily, day-to-day basis, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, Emmanuel. They would say Emmanuel all the time, God with us. It became common. And so when the Isaiah prophet said there's going to be a child called Emmanuel, it wasn't a big deal to them. The, the problem was they were like, Emmanuel, God with us. There's a gazillion Emmanuels. God's always with us. And so when you get to Isaiah chapter 9, God's now refining and describing the breadth of this Emmanuel. This is not the -the run-of-the-mill God with us. This is God with us, God really with us in a a, a way that you can't imagine. And so this this, um, unfolds for us that, that this God is going to be a son at the same time a mighty God. He's going to reign on David's throne in Jerusalem and Bethlehem, be connected to there. But the light will dawn from Galilee, and all of these prophecies are going to come together. Who is this Emmanuel, in other words? How in the world can God be with us? And this is the description. And and there's these names, the four throne names of his royal power. Uh, they, They are given to us as wonderful counselor. He's the astonishing counselor. Counter to the folly of human wisdom uh, this counselor will not need anything from earth. This, this counselor will bring the wisdom of heaven, uh, better advice than anything from earth. He needs no external advice. He is the astonishing, amazing, wonderful counselor that will bring the wisdom of God to people who are living in darkness and distress and don't know which way to turn. But not only that, he's the mighty God. Now, this was blow your mind kind of stuff. He's going to be a child who's going to be born, but he's going to be mighty God. What are you talking about here? And so many just have, have t- tried to and tempted to describe this away and say, well, it didn't really mean God. No, no, it really means God. In the same context, in chapter 10, verse 21, the description to Gabor El, which this is in Hebrew, is none other than the mighty God of heaven, He is the true mighty God. The omnipotent one will be born among you and will, God is really, really going to be with you, among you. There's no greater power for you, no greater power with you, the Lord himself. And that's describing his power, but then it describes his presence. The style of his presence will be everlasting father. Many nations have declared that the the leader of their nations called the father of the nation. But this one will be the everlasting father. 
The Father who is from everlasting to everlasting. This is the eternal one. Uh, Not born in the classic sense of born, but rather incarnation. God himself, the everlasting God, will take on human flesh. The New Testament writers fleshed this out more for us. This wasn't well understood. This was too amazing to understand. You mean our Lord, our Redeemer, the one who's going to sacrifice for his own children? That one is going to be the child in the manger? Yes. And finally, he'll be the Prince of Peace, the one who makes peace between God the King and man possible. The son who Jesus is and what he does. The anger of God is averted. God's hand will finally move from upraised to caress us as his children who are beloved because of the Prince of Peace who is the propitiation, the one who averts the wrath of God so that by the righteousness of Christ that we receive, God, a holy God, can really live among us, now a holy people. In the absence of this, humanity could never breach the gulf. Unholy humanity, holy God. This is magnificent. What God has done for us. It's truly amazing. And we are grateful for the stubborn, sovereign love of God. So what should we do? The wise get in on this. And they give over the government of their lives fully to the government of Jesus Christ. His forever government, the Prince of Peace. If you have never done that or you have not yet done that, then you have bigger problems on your hands than your distress and your brokenness and your hurt. You have Almighty God in opposition to your life. Nevertheless, a light has dawned the redeeming grace of God. The dawn of his light rose on Christmas Day. At Calvary, that light was darkened. In the garden tomb, as the stone rolled away, the dawn of his light rose again. And we all are waiting for the high noon of Christ's light when he comes again. And we will be with him in the unhindered light of the high noon of his light forever. And what's our guarantee for all of this? The zeal, it says here, of the great I am, the Lord of heavenly hosts, will accomplish this. You have no better guarantee than from the Lord of heaven himself. Our Father, and I I pray this morning, as we now um, take in all that you've said to us through your word, 
Lord, would you make it once again amazing, astonishing, extraordinary in the way we treat you and what you've done for us? Oh God, you have by your grace rescued us from our arrogance, from our abuse, from our hostility toward one another, from our sinfulness, from our lies, and given us the Prince of Peace, peace with God forever. Oh God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Because he shall reign forevermore. Isn't that a glorious truth? Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom we have put our trust, reigns forevermore. If you're wondering what's happening around the world and you're distressed at all, know this. Jesus Christ and his government is taking over the universe. That's what's happening. That's what's taking place in our world. And he shall reign forevermore. Amen? The Prince of Peace, our King. What a glorious truth we have to share with our friends and our family this Christmas season. Let's do this with all of our hearts. Share the truth of this good news. What should you do this morning if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ or if you've allowed your life to stray away from him? The wise, get in on this. Give over the government of your life fully to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him carry your life. He carries the government on his shoulders, the Prince of Peace, the Lord of all lords. Come to him. Our pastors will be here. We'd love to meet with you right after the service and pray with you and make sure that you know how you can have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ or make sure that you have your life restored to him through repentance. Don't live in your sin. Jesus Christ has died to conquer the power of sin in our lives. Our Father and our God, we pray this morning and thank you. We give you all the praise and all the glory. We love you. What you have done for us is truly, truly amazing. It is so gracious that you would rescue us from the way we are and enable us to be in Christ Jesus. His righteousness. That a holy God could now be with a holy people. Oh God, thank you in Jesus' name, amen.